Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Earlier this week, I received the final decision from Jennifer's attorney. He has decided not to allow Jennifer to be interviewed on the show or even talk about her case with me. Unfortunately, that decision has left us with a gaping hole in our investigation. We have never heard Jennifer's version of what actually happened that morning. All we have to work with are her original police interviews and edited clips of a 2017 interview with Crime Watch Daily. Even her police interviews don't give us her own words, only the summaries written by detectives and statements typed by the same. There simply is no path forward in this investigation for us without hearing Jennifer's own explanation for the events of the morning. And it's for that reason that over the next two weeks, we will be bringing season 10 to a close. Next week, I'll be doing one last recap of everything that we know and delivering my final detailed theory of the case. And this week, I'm going to be presenting the last bit of new information that I have and breaking down the prosecution's closing arguments. This is Season 10, Episode 28, In Closing. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going to start out today's episode by breaking down Prosecutor D. Glazer's closing argument. I think that this is an important step for us to take because it really gives us the basis for the state's case against Jen. After the full investigation, forensic tests, and trial testimonies from both sides, this is how the state believes Jennifer was involved. This is also the final word that the jury was allowed to hear before being ordered to deliberate and deliver a verdict. Closing arguments are not allowed to be considered as evidence by the jury. Attorneys are allowed to make inferences and state opinions during closing arguments. They are not, however, allowed to misrepresent evidence. For example, if there was a DNA profile on a crime scene that didn't contain enough data for a usable profile, the prosecutor is allowed to say, 
there was DNA on the crime scene, and we don't know if it belonged to the defendant. It could be theirs. They can say that. And I've even seen closing arguments where a DA will go even further, saying things like, I believe that the DNA belongs to the defendant. But they're not allowed to say things like, the defendant's DNA was found on the crime scene when they don't have proof that it was. They can't lie about the evidence, or at least they're not supposed to. Unfortunately, throughout the history of this podcast, we've all seen horrible examples of when prosecutors have gotten away with doing just that. But as a matter of law, the closing arguments are not evidence. It's the place in the trial where the DA wraps their case up into a nice little bow just before they send the jury out to make a decision. The full closing argument is posted on our website. As we move along here today, I'll be summarizing and reading some excerpts along the way. Glazer begins her arguments with an attempt to exculpate Eva. After hearing the entire trial, it seems like her first concern is that the jury may think that Eva is responsible for Catalina's murder rather than Jen. Her first course of business is to squash that notion. She says that Coyne would like the jury to believe that Eva was somehow involved in the murder, but, quote, I think that you guys had an opportunity to listen to Miss Mondragon testify, and you had the ability to listen to the other witnesses testify, and you can tell who's the truth teller. Glazer has a huge advantage here. Jen's attorney didn't have access to all of her statements, or Katie and Youngster's statements. Glazer gets to claim that Eva is the truth teller, because the jury has no idea how many times she's changed her story, or how it conflicts with everyone else's story. Glazer makes the point that if Eva was involved in the murder, then she obviously would have taken the wallet out from behind the fridge and taken it with her when she moved. She says that while Coyne has tried to show them that Jennifer had 24 hours after the murder to remove the wallet, that she had no reason to because she was convinced that she had gotten away with it and thought that the police believed her to be just a witness. All this completely ignoring the fact that the exact same argument could be made for Eva leaving it behind as well. After that, she moves on and mentions Katie and Youngster. Quote, The defense attorney also wants you to believe that the flight of the other folks who left this scene is evidence of guilt. Well, so she sticks around and lies. Lying is also evidence of guilt. In these first few pages, Glazer is playing defense, trying to eliminate all the options other than Jen. She then circles back to Eva's lies. Specifically, her grand jury testimony that doesn't match with her other police interviews or the actual evidence in the case. Glazer says that it's perfectly reasonable to assume that Eva did see red marks and bruises on Jennifer and that the police didn't see them later. Because they weren't bruises, they were impressions. And by the time Jen got to the police station, they were gone. Quote, That's reasonable. She's not lying. She goes on to say that if Eva was lying about seeing Jennifer stuff something into her pocket, well then she would have been more specific and say that she saw her stuffing the wallet into her pocket. And it's also supposed to be obvious that Eva would remember more when testifying to the grand jury because there was just one police officer asking her questions the first time and there were a dozen jurors asking her what happened at the indictment. She had the opportunity to be more specific and add in more details. And that's why her story was different. And again, remember, as the jury's hearing this, they have no idea that Eva actually gave three statements to the police. They only heard a written statement. 
Next, Glazer moves on to the mistakes made in the investigation. First up, she addresses the wallet. Quote, Officer Cobb screwed up, and he screwed up big time. He gets a wallet that he knows is taken from a capital murder, and what does he do with it? He puts it in his car and forgets about it until someone brings it to his attention. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't get up there on the stand, and he didn't make excuses. He recognized his mistake. At least we have a wallet. And she goes on to say, quote, He did screw up. Yeah. Will it hopefully make him a better police officer? Yeah. Next up, Glazer addresses the fact that Allen didn't collect any of the knives as evidence for testing. Once they, air quote, knew that Catalina was killed with a large knife, and they knew that a large knife was missing, and there was no sign of anyone cleaning a knife in the apartment, it's perfectly reasonable that they didn't test any of the knives at the scene. Quote, So would it have been maybe nice to have all of the knives? Sure. It would be one less thing for me to have to argue about. But folks, when they are doing that investigation, it didn't make sense to take all the knives. Not at all. She goes on to say that it's, quote, perfectly reasonable that even though the detectives believed there was blood on the plastic from the silverware drawer, they didn't test it. I mean, why would they? She says that it's because they were sure that it was transfer blood, and therefore it would have just been Catalina's. So why test it? Now think about that for a second. They believe that the murder weapon came from the drawer. They believe there's blood in the drawer, which would have gotten there before Catalina was stabbed while the killer was getting the weapon. And yet, it's supposedly perfectly reasonable to assume that it was Catalina's blood, transfer blood. Remember, Catalina was hit over the head with a ceramic object before she was stabbed. I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume that the killer would have cut their hand when the ceramic shattered, which is probably why we have two foreign DNA profiles in the bloodstains on the shards. And if that's true, and if it is blood on the plastic, then it very likely is the killer's blood. Glazer next explains how it's not Officer Cobb's fault that they were unable to get any usable prints off of the wallet. Although I'm not sure that I understand her argument. She says that the friction from being in the bag for three months is not the reason that we have no prints on the wallet. And then she says that we know that because not even Catalina's prints were found on the wallet. And I honestly am not exactly sure how one and one make two in that argument. But that's what she said. She moves on. Now she wants to talk about the reason why Detective Allen didn't record or write down all of Jennifer's statements. Quote, Why? Because he kept asking her, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. He's trying to get some more information from her spontaneity. And another thing, do you think that Mr. Coyne would really be appreciative of having to try to explain six different written statements? I don't think so. And then, not intentionally, I'm sure, Glazer explains to the jury exactly how juvenile false confessions happen. And don't you know that this defendant kept trying, during the course of being interviewed by Sergeant Allen, tried to explain away every possible explanation as to how maybe fingerprints could have been found here, or how she could have cut her hand, or how her blood might be somewhere. Always, always some sort of excuse. What she's not saying here is that Jen was making excuses for things that didn't actually exist. 
her blood wasn't on the scene. Her fingerprints weren't found anywhere inside of the scene. Alan kept suggesting to her that they were, and she kept coming up with excuses why. This is not evidence of guilt. It's textbook psychology. It's gaslighting. He refused to accept her truth, and eventually she gave up, as most juvenile suspects do under these circumstances, and she started trying to piece together a story that the detectives would accept. But of course, the jury didn't hear that explanation. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. We're halfway through the closing statement, and Glazer is still playing defense at this point. She next addresses the admissibility of Jennifer's confession. She says that Coyne would have you believe that because Jennifer had no parents or lawyer present, that she was making an uninformed statement, that she didn't understand what she was doing. But she points out that a judge went through all of her warnings with her and made sure that Jennifer fully understood what she was doing. She drives this point home by explaining just how savvy Jennifer is. Quote, And Mr. Coyne wants you to believe that this poor little child was misinformed, and that's what caused her to sign the statement. This poor little child is someone who, by virtue of her own statement, tells you she had no qualms thinking about acting as a lookout, going into somebody's apartment while she's there, tying the lady up and just stealing her keys. No problem at all. That doesn't sound like a child to me. She had the forethought to immediately place herself as a witness. This girl thinks, and she thinks fast. She goes upstairs and gets rid of the wallet that she has. This is not a child. And you look at all of her conduct and evaluate that. Don't you dare feel sorry for her because she was only 15 when this happened. You can't. You look at the conduct, not the age. That's what makes a person. And you know right there that's not a 15-year-old little girl. Not the 15-year-old little girls we know. Probably not even the 15-year-old girls that y'all know. Another thing about reviewing this evidence is the defense attorney wants you to say that. Read this statement. Obviously, you're going to read the statement, and nowhere in there does she ever touch the weapon. Okay, I agree with that. There's no evidence that she ever touched the knife. But Jennifer Jeffley is always the one that gets the ball rolling. And next, Glazer tells the jury exactly what Jennifer is guilty of. I'm going to read to you her full argument here. Here's what Jennifer did. Jennifer Jeffley is the one who knows the victim. Jennifer Jeffley is the one that tells the people that's Miss Palomino's home. 
Jennifer Jeffley is the one that goes to the door, knocks again just to confirm and verify that Miss Palomino was there before they go in. Jennifer Jeffley is the person who scales the fence along with those two other people and go in and commit this offense. Now, do you believe Jennifer is only a lookout and that's her only intention? A lookout doesn't go inside. Doesn't make sense. Don't believe that. Jennifer Jeffley went in there, and once she went into that apartment, that was basically the death warrant for Maria Palomino. And why? Because Maria Palomino could recognize and identify Jennifer Jeffley. And as soon as she stepped foot in that apartment, it was over. Now, you keep going on with the evidence as far as making her a party to capital murder. Miss Palomino is hit over the head at least twice if you believe her confession. And you've got five areas of trauma to the head, according to Dr. Carter. Maria Palomino was hit several times. Let me point out to you, too, another thing in her conversations with Sergeant Allen is she's trying to explain, perhaps, how she might have cut her hand. And that would have been because I lifted up this piece of pottery off Miss Palomino. That's incredible. The reason that she's saying that is because, in my opinion, based upon the evidence, and it's a reasonable inference from the evidence, at a minimum, this child whacks Miss Palomino over the head with a flower pot or a piece of pottery. I want to point out here that this is not a reasonable inference. There was DNA testing of the blood found on the pottery, and it produced three profiles. Catalina's and two unknown profiles. Jennifer was ruled out as being the contributor of the unknown profiles. The pottery is shattered. I don't think it was picked back up and used a second time. If Jen was the one that broke the pottery over Catalina's head and cut her hand in the process, then it would be Jennifer's DNA on the pottery. Back to the transcript. Now, what else does this defendant do? She says we are just going to do a car theft. We're going to get her keys, and we're out of there after they tie her up. Why did she go ahead and grab the wallet? She didn't go in there just to get a car. She didn't go in there just to tie her up and get out of there. She winds up with the wallet. Isn't it funny, when the wallet is found, there's no money in there. You've got identification and everything else, but not a dime. Cash in her pocket, too. Another thing that you need to look at when you're looking at her confession is that she indicates that Tim points to or has her look at a partially open kitchen drawer. But she's the one who pulls it open further, and then Tim tells her to get a knife. She's the one who's lifting up the plastic, and she doesn't say that she didn't want to do it. You read her confession, and what you see is that she just doesn't get the knife fast enough, so Tim grabs it. And Tim gives it to Ernest, and then Ernest stabs and kills Maria Palomino. And then what does this defendant do? She doesn't feel guilty at all. She's still got the victim's wallet. She jumps out of the apartment, and then she's going to start playing it off like she's a witness. Again, look at the confession. The statement. One thing that just I really feel like should be noted here, and I really wish that the jury understood, is that the emotions that D. Glazer is pulling out of that confession and presenting to the jury didn't come from Jennifer. Those aren't her words. She didn't type it. Now, we can argue about whether the confession is accurate or whether it's false or whether it was coerced, but one thing that we know for sure is Jennifer's emotions aren't coming through that writing because she didn't write it. And I really don't think it's fair, whether she's innocent or guilty, for the prosecutor to look at the words on that paper and tell the jury, look, she didn't even feel guilty. She didn't even say she didn't want to. She just grabs it when those words were typed by Detective Allen. And at the very least, what should be taken away from these arguments 
is that there are in fact two other people in the apartment with Jen. Glazer acknowledges that it was Ernest who actually killed Catalina. In Glazer's own words, quote, look at the confession. And yet not a finger was lifted after a few days of looking to find the people who actually killed this poor woman. After this, Glazer goes through every point where Jen changed her story to match the suggestions of Detective Allen. And again, she's presenting this and sees this as a sign of guilt. But in my opinion, it's typical behavior that we often see in juvenile false confessions. And actually, that's not my opinion. That's a fact. These are behaviors that we do see, absolutely do see, in juvenile false confessions all the time. Glazer starts giving examples. Jen says she jumped the fence behind Truesdale. Then Alan tells her that's impossible because Keith and Pam say it didn't happen. Never mind the fact that neither one of them could see the patio from their vantage points at that time. So Jen says she jumped the fence before Eva and Pam returned. But nope, that's impossible too because they were only gone for, quote, a split second. Also not true. Glazer says Alan, quote, would have said, can you explain to me why your fingerprints might be on the purse? So then Jennifer says she actually went to the front door and she moved the purse. Alan says that they processed the drawer and wants to know why Jennifer's fingerprints might be found there. So Jen says that she opened the drawer. These are Glazer's words presenting this to the jury in an attempt to convince them that Alan didn't influence the confession. It goes on and on. She's literally telling the jury how Alan suggested all these elements that are found in her confession while trying to explain to the jury that he didn't suggest anything. She's showing them exactly what happened, that Jennifer kept lying to try to fit the evidence that Alan was presenting to her. As she approaches the end of her arguments, Glazer asked the jury not to feel sympathetic towards Jennifer. She says that the judge made very clear in her warnings that Jen was entitled to both a lawyer and to have her parents present, and it was her choice not to do so. And then Glazer says that Jen's grandmother was lying when she said that Swainson left her at the apartment when she went to retrieve her keys. And she tells the jury that we know this because KD told the jury that that's not true. But really, what he actually said was that he didn't recall seeing Harriet, but also that he really wasn't paying attention. Quote, Nothing was unlawful about the taking of that statement. So please don't feel sorry for her because you think that because she's 15 years old, she couldn't make these informed decisions because now all of the protections that were made in trying to make sure that Jennifer Jeffley, when she signed the statement, knew exactly what she was doing. That statement by Glazer was later proven to be not true. Years later, an appellate court did end up throwing the statement out based on these exact grounds. But unfortunately for Jennifer... Her conviction was still upheld even without the confession, primarily because of two things, the fingerprint on the outside of the patio door and because of Eva's testimony. Glazer concludes her closing arguments with this. Jennifer Jeffley didn't care about whether or not Miss Palomino lived or died. She wanted her to die. Going back there to the apartment and investigating, She's doing it to make sure she's dead, because she knows that Miss Palomino can and would have identified her if she had lived. The defendant is guilty of capital murder, and that's the only verdict that I hope you would reach. 
Right after this, the jury went into deliberations and ultimately convicted then 16-year-old Jennifer Jeffley of capital murder. 24 years later, she's still behind bars today. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Before I close things out today, I have three updates that I want to share with you all before we move on to our final episode of Season 10. These are three things that I've been working on over the past several weeks, one of which I need your help on. I'll start with that one. Thanks to listener Laura Heaney, we now know that there was, in fact, someone living in the apartment next to Eva at the time of the murder. Laura did some great sleuthing and was able to find the name of the individual. Now, you all know that I'm usually very careful about giving out names of people who are not listed in the public records. But on rare occasions, like this one, I feel that it's necessary. First and foremost, I want to make crystal clear that no one should be reaching out to this person. They are not to be harassed or bothered by anyone. This is a critical lead, and I have turned it over to Jennifer's attorney. But as of now, I have not been able to connect with this person. My hope is that maybe one of you listening knows this person personally and might be able to put me in touch. If you do happen to come across any contact information, do not post it on social media. You can send it to me, and I can forward it to Jen's lawyer. This lead could be nothing but it could also be very critical to the case. This person lived right next to Eva, and in Detective Allen's report that I read to you last week, he noted that there were two people interviewed whose statements were not documented. There is a possibility that there could be a Brady violation buried here somewhere. So again, if you have some way to find contact information for this person, if you know them personally, Reach out to me through email or through private message, and I will get that information to Jennifer's attorney. With all that being said, the name of the person who lived next to Eva is Danny Joe Bringhurst. Danny is 48 years old right now and still lives in the Houston area. I believe that Danny was originally as a kid from Pennsylvania. I do have what I believe is a current address for Danny, and I have turned that over to Jennifer's attorney because I don't plan on making any trips to Houston anytime soon. Honestly, I don't know Danny's gender, so keep that in mind. The name Danny and the middle name Joe really could go either way. So please, that's the name of the person that lived next to Eva at the time of the murder. If you happen to know that person personally or if the name rings a bell and you have some contact information for them, please forward that to me and I will send it along to Jennifer's attorney. 
Next, I want to fill you in on a question that's been asked of me by several listeners. Everyone wants to know if Eva's boyfriend from the time of the murder has a criminal record. While I will not review his name, I can tell you what I found in his background. It appears that around the time of the murder, or at least shortly after, Eva's boyfriend was some kind of low-level drug dealer. This is what I found in his criminal history in Harris County. In 1998, he was convicted for felony delivery of drugs. Looks like 28 grams of crack cocaine. Then in 92, he was convicted of felony theft from $750 to $20,000. Then in 1993, he was convicted of felony auto theft. Then a few months before the murder, he was convicted of felony possession of a penalty group 1 controlled substance. And a penalty group 1 substance, or PG-1, would be either opiates, heroin, cocaine, or meth. And then in 2000, he was convicted for manufacturing and or delivering a controlled substance, another felony. And then that's it. After that, his record's clean. So that's what I have right now for Eva's boyfriend at the time of the murder. That's his criminal record. Lastly, I want to follow up on something that occurred to me in real time during Friday's follow-up episode. I had mentioned in last week's main episode that while Jennifer has never once mentioned or even indicated that she has any knowledge whatsoever of the wallet that was found stashed behind Eva's fridge, Eva did demonstrate some guilty knowledge when she changed her story and testified that she saw Jennifer stuffing something into her pants when she returned to the crime scene with Pam Wiley. In the episode last week, I assumed that Eva had been made aware of the wallet by the police or the DA before her testimony. But during the follow-up discussion, it occurred to me that Eva had testified about the pants stuffing at the grand jury. And I wasn't sure at the time when the grand jury indictment took place. And I now have the answer. Eva testified before the grand jury on April 8th, six weeks before the wallet was found. Now, to be fair, I've thought a lot more about the situation since that recording. And I think there are some other explanations. I think I said during the follow-up that if she testified about Jen stuffing something into her pants before the wallet was found, then that had to mean that she must have been involved in the murder. As I said, that discussion was happening in real time, and I definitely need to back down from that statement, now that I've had a little more time to think about it. It really doesn't mean that she had to be involved. I do believe that Eva is leaking out some guilty knowledge here, but it doesn't necessarily mean that she knows the wallet was behind the fridge. Even though the wallet hadn't been found yet, one of the detectives involved could have told her that it was missing or that the keys were missing. We don't have any record of them doing so, and that's definitely information that they should have kept close to the vest, but they could have mentioned it to her. And since that's a possibility, that certainly removes the certainty from my previous statement. Either way, it's definitely another example of Eva pushing hard for Jennifer to be the one who went down for this murder. And in my opinion, it is a leak of guilty knowledge. She really should not have known anything was taken out of that apartment. Remember, she wasn't even hanging around the apartment for days after the murder. She moved out the day after. She was gone. So the only way she really could have known is if one of the police officers told her about it when they talked to her sometime before the grand jury. And that's all I have for you this week. I want to thank you all for sticking with me through this season. I know it's been tough at times, and believe me, it's been just as frustrating for me. But I truly believe that this case represents a horrible miscarriage of justice, and in more ways than one. And next week, I'll be sharing with you my detailed theory of how Catalina was murdered, 
and how it fits with all the evidence. Until then, take care, everyone. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. And Mike can be found at MurbGaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.